0: isn't it? Well done, well done. Well, I want to begin the message this morning with a question, and here it is. Have you ever been in a situation or a season in your life where you felt like the end was never going to come? The next step, so to speak, was never going to happen. Let me give you a handful of examples as the choir exits. Right now, We are in the middle of autumn, my favorite season. However, last night before we went to bed, we had to do something. You probably did as well. We had to turn on the furnace because winter is coming. And every February, I've said it and I think I've heard you say it too, this winter is never going to end. We say that, don't we? Spring is never going to get here. It just seems like the winter goes on perpetually. And I say to myself, I am ready for this to be over. I'm ready to trade in my car scraper from my nine iron. Speaking of nine irons, have you ever tried to play Mill Creek golf course on a Saturday in June or July? Those of you that are golfing are laughing at me because by your second shot on the third hole, you're thinking, we are never gonna see the eighteenth green. Just slogging along here on this long round of golf. It's not even fun at that point. Here's another one. Have you ever been in a long car ride with small children? You know where I'm going with this. After 10 minutes into your 10-hour drive, you start to hear the questions. Are we ever going to get there? Are we there yet? We've been in the car forever. We're never going to get there. You know what I'm talking about. Some of you, you do this each and every week, you have this feeling. uh, Right around the time the sermon is halfway over, you think, man, is this guy ever going to get done? I mean, land the plane already, buddy. Let's do this thing. You have that feeling. It's never going to happen. Is a more serious one. Maybe you uh, or someone you know has experienced a chronic illness of some kind, or, or some kind of uh, ongoing pain. And appointment after appointment, treatment after treatment, uncertain prognosis after uncertain prognosis. And, and after a while, you start to think, "Is this is this it? I mean, is, is this ever going to end? Is there ever a next step that's coming?" Of all the wonderful doctrines of the Christian faith, there is one in particular that can make us feel the same sense of uncertainty, the sense of, is it ever going to happen? And as we continue in our series in Peter's second letter this morning, we're coming face to face with the return of Jesus Christ to the earth. Is the return of Jesus something that's ever going to happen? Is it something we can really count on? Well, what we're going to see from our passage this morning is the answer to that question is yes. We can be certain about the return of Jesus. We can be absolutely sure that that Jesus will, in fact, return to the earth in glory, visibly, bodily. He is coming back. But how can we be sure? How can we really know? I mean, is there a way to to maybe bolster our certainty, bolster our confidence that Jesus really is coming back? How can we do that? Why has there been so much time that has seemingly gone by between when Jesus ascended into heaven and gave the Great Commission and and his return again to the earth? What's with the, the big gap of time? In a world of so much uncertainty, how can we be sure that Jesus really is coming back? These are the kind of questions that we're going to ask of the text today as we come to the Bible, so why don't I pray for us and we'll get rolling. Father, we do thank you for the chance to be together this morning, to open the Word and to study it together. We're grateful that you've made yourself known to us in such a, a clear and sufficient way through the pages of Scripture. So give us eyes to see and ears to hear your truth today, for Jesus' sake, amen. You can go ahead and meet me in your Bibles in Peter's second letter. You know we've been there the last several weeks. If you're using a pew Bible this morning, it's going to be on page 1019. And we're going to be in 2 Peter chapter 3, looking at verses 1 to 10. And I really want to encourage you to grab a Bible this morning. You will have a lot more fun. It will be a lot more interactive. So again, page 1019 of the pew Bible, 2 Peter 3, 1 to 10. We've already heard the passage read in its entirety this morning. I appreciate Nathan doing that for us. And so we're going to dive right into the text. And as we dive in, we're going to make four observations this morning, four ways Peter is going to give us that we can be sure, certain, and bolster our certainty that Jesus really is coming again. First, we can be certain about the return of Jesus when we remember to think biblically, when our minds are, are stirred up, stimulated to think biblically, we are going to bolster our confidence about the return of Jesus. Take a look down at Second Peter 3 and the first two verses there. Peter says, this is now the second letter that I'm writing to you, beloved, and in both of them, I'm stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder that you should remember the predictions of the holy prophets and the commandments of the Lord and Savior through your apostles." So Peter opens up this uh, section of his letter by telling his friends. You notice the tone changed from the last couple of weeks from kind of railing uh, justifiably against these false teachers and now he's speaking to his friends. He says, beloved or friends, I'm writing to you to stir you up to right thinking, to stimulate you to right thinking. This is what happens uh, when we, after our iced tea, has been sitting on the table for a little while And all the sediment and the sugar crystals and the honey or whatever else we put in there start to settle at the bottom. We take our spoon, don't we, and we stir it up. We stir it up to get all that mixed together again. That's what Peter is doing here. He is stirring up or stimulating their thinking to remember something. Now, this idea of of remembering is not something that is new to Peter's second letter. As a matter of fact, you might remember a few weeks ago when Pastor Al talked about some of those enduring characteristics and qualities of Christian living... Back in Second Peter 1, he said, I intend to always remind you of these qualities. Though you know them and are established in the truth, I think it right to stir you up by way of reminder. What he's saying here is that even though you already know this, it's right for me to remind you. And as a pastor, I absolutely love this because so often I hear people say things like, you know, I really know this stuff already. I mean, I've read through the Bible a hundred times, cover to cover. I've been a Christian for a hundred years. I'm ready for something deeper. I'm ready for something else. Well, if you've uttered those words before, friends, I want you to take heed to what Peter is saying here. Because we all need to be reminded about the realities of the Christian life. Because we forget. I mean, I can't remember what I ate for breakfast yesterday yesterday. I need to be reminded of the truth of the gospel, reminded of the truth about what the Bible says about the Christian life. And even if we do remember that truth cognitively, it's so easy for us to forget to apply that truth obediently. So let's embrace these pastoral reminders together to remember. Now, what does he want us to remember? Verse 2 tells us, you can look down again. Remember the predictions of the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior through your apostles. In other words, he says, remember the truth of the Old and New Testaments and remember what the Bible has to say about the return of Jesus because it has a lot to say. And uh, while we don't have time to work through every reference in the Old and New Testaments to the return of Jesus, I'm going to give you two this morning, one from the Old, one from the New, and they're both going to come from 24th chapters, maybe to help uh, remember, stir up your, your thinking there. Isaiah 24. The prophet Isaiah speaks of a terrible day, truthfully, a, a cataclysmic day of judgment that the New Testament often refers to as the day of the Lord. In fact, it's so ominous, sometimes it's just called the day, period. Isaiah 24 speaks of a day when the Lord will empty the earth and make it desolate, when the earth will be utterly broken, split apart, violently shaken, In the New Testament, we'll go to Matthew 24. So we have Isaiah 24 in the Old, Matthew 24 in the New, notes Jesus talking about a time in history when nation is going to rise up against nation, kingdom against kingdom. Many of you know this passage. A day when many false prophets will arise and lead many astray. And ultimately, a day when the entire world would see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. These are the things, Peter says, that I'm stirring you up to remember, remember to think biblically about the return of Jesus. Now, uh, pastor and author von Roberts tells a story of a friend of his, a pastor friend of his named Robert. Robert's a British pastor, and Robert was once asked at a conference about his most embarrassing moment in life. He says, oh, that's, that's easy. It's the day after my wedding, and it's the day that I forgot to remember something very, very important. But before I tell you the story, he says, I've I've got to tell you that I'm one of those people that is very bad in the mornings. See, I'm not talking about bad, like, I need a cup of coffee to get going kind of bad. Like, so bad that sometimes I forget where I'm at. I I forget what I'm doing. I'm not really totally cohesive in the mornings. He says, I'm that kind of person. He says, so... Uh, one day, I wake up in a, a hotel bedroom, and there lying in the bed next to me is this woman. And I immediately think to myself, Robert, what have you done? I mean, you're a pastor, and here's this woman in the bed next to you. What, what? And he said, before I could even gather another thought, I grabbed all my stuff, I rushed for the door, and as I went to the door, my wife of just a few hours said to me, Robert, what are you doing? He said, I looked at her blankly and said, Madam, Madam, I'm afraid I've made a terrible mistake. (laughs) And it was at that moment that he began to remember what had happened the day before. How as bad as that is, forgetting to remember something that important. What Peter is telling us here, believe it or not, Is even more important to remember that if we want to be certain about the return of Jesus, we have got to remember to think biblically. So after laying out this critical foundation, uh, Peter says there is another way, another way to build our certainty about the return of Jesus. He says we can be certain about the return of Christ when we're alert to those who mock God's promise. When we raise our awareness to those who scoff and mock and poke fun of this idea that Jesus is going to come back to the earth. Check out verses 3 and 4. He says, Beloved, know this, first of all, that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing. Following their own sinful desires, they will say, Where is the promise of His coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation." The truth, friends, is that as as modern Christians, we might be able to get away with talking about the historical earthly ministry of Jesus in first century Palestine. History bears witness to the fact that he was here on the earth. We might even be able to get away with sharing a few of his teachings. But the minute that we start talking about the return of Jesus to the earth, eternal judgment, the sky rolling back like a scroll, angelic trumpet calls and all that comes with it, some people are going to think that we have wandered off into cloud cuckoo land somewhere. I mean, you don't really believe that, do you? I mean, that's what these mockers, these scoffers are saying. That is such a simple-minded, silly. I mean, we're modern people. We live in the West. We've been educated. You don't actually believe that. That's like a fairy tale. You see, these mockers, these false teachers, as Peter described them back in chapter 2, they had a really materialistic naturalistic kind of way to look at the world which is actually a very modern way to think it's a worldview that proposes that matter is really all that matters the the only thing that speaks to reality are the things that we can see and taste and touch and hear and so they're saying look around the sun rises and the sun sets we live, we die, we pay taxes rinse and repeat there's no interjection of God in any of this story look around you where is he? Where's where's the promise of his return? I don't see him. Do you see him? So they mock and they scoff. Peter says, be alert. Put up your antenna. Understand the objections that these cynics are bringing against the return of Jesus. And one of the ways that we can be aware is to understand why they had such an issue with the return of Jesus. And Peter tells us in verse 3. You might look down at it again. He says, scoffers will come with scoffing following their own sinful desires. Now, think about that for a minute. If Jesus doesn't come back, let's, let's play that out to the end. If there's no day of reckoning, no, no final accountability, th- these guys are free to live however they want, right? They're, they're free to behave in whatever way that they find acceptable. This is what we do when we reject the second coming of Jesus anything goes, everything goes. Our theology about the end times, our theology about the last days, or eschatology, if you like big words, has tremendous bearing on the way that we live in the present day. It doesn't just happen out there. It has tremendous bearing for how we live today. And so what these mockers were doing is setting up this theological framework that fit their own selfish desires. And I'll be honest, friends, we've got to be really careful that we don't fall into that same trap. That is writing our theology to match what we want out of life. That is creating God in our image so that we can feel good about ourselves and do what we want in life. We've got to be very careful about that trap because while we might not be sitting here this morning shaking our fists at the sky, literally mocking the promise of Jesus' return, we have to be careful that our lives don't reflect that, that our lives are reflecting submission and eagerness and anticipation of God's promise rather than mocking it. But before we move on, I just want to dive a little bit deeper and and emphasize that that mocking God's word goes even further than bad morality and bad eschatology, as if that weren't enough. I want you to remember back to the book of Genesis, Genesis chapter 3, it's the account of the fall of mankind, and that chapter in the book of Genesis opens with the introduction of a new character. Do you remember who that character was? It was a serpent, yeah, a snake, somebody said it, thank you. And the Bible describes this character straight away as crafty. What a perfect word. What a descriptive word to describe this character. Because you might remember his very first words in the narrative are, Did God actually say? Did, did God really say this or this or that and that? Do you see what he's done here? He's mocking God. What God has said. He's mocking God's word, mocking God's promise. And we need to understand that the very root of temptation and the very root of the sin that succumbs to that temptation is connected to mocking God's word or mocking His promise. We uh, don't need to look very far in our culture to see examples of mocking. It happens every day on school playgrounds when a child picks on another child because they look a little bit different. We see it if we turn on a cable news network and the political pundits fire missiles across the networks to the other cable station that doesn't agree with what they agree with politically. We see mocking take place, unfortunately, in our homes when parents go below the belt and mock their spouses in front of their children. How much more dangerous then, how much more harmful is it when God's promise is mocked and, and remember, we have to be aware of those who intentionally mock the return of Jesus, but also remember that mocking God's word is not something that's all that far away from each and every one of us. We are all prone to believe the serpent's lie. There's a little mocker inside every one of us. And so I pray that we would cling fast to God's promise this morning, especially anticipating the fulfilled promise of Jesus' return. So we're certain that Jesus is coming back and we can be certain by remembering to think biblically. By also raising our awareness, being alert to those who mock God's promise. And Peter offers up a third reason that we can be sure. We can be certain about the return of Jesus by the precedent of God's interactive word. Our certainty about the return of Jesus is grounded in a historical precedent that God indeed interacts With his creation, and he interacts by the means of his word. Look at Peter's response to these mockers in uh, verses 5 to 7. For they, meaning the scoffers and mockers, deliberately overlook this fact that the heavens existed long ago, and the earth was formed out of water and through water by the word of God, and that by means of these, the world that then existed was deluged with water and perished. Verse 7 But by the same word, the heavens and the earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and the destruction of the ungodly. There's a lot going on there. I mean, what is, what's that all about? Here it is distilled down into one idea. Peter is saying that these false teachers have simply forgotten their history. Verse 5, that they, they have deliberately overlooked the historical facts. And so their quote-unquote intellectual mockery really is not intellectual at all. They've forgotten their history. And Peter appeals to two specific incidents in redemption history to make his point. The first is creation, and the second is the flood. So I'm going to read a bit from both of those accounts from Genesis 1. The author says, The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. And God said, Let there be light. Verse 6, And God said, let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters. Verse 11, and God said, Let the earth sprout vegetation, plants yielding seed. I mean, you get the idea. We could go on and on. God said, and so it was. In the creation account, we clearly see God interacting with his creation by his word. Peter's second appeal to historical precedent is the flood. In Genesis 6, verse 5, The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. It's pretty bleak. So, verse 7, the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land. So, in other words, because God interacted with his word in the past, it is right and even reasonable to think that he's going to do it again. I mean, this isn't like an intellectual leap here. We're not just Christians grasping for straws. This is based on precedent that we know from history. The return of Jesus is consistent with the way God interacts with his creation by his word. Now, my wife Sarah is an amazing cook. I would even call her a chef. And many of you have had the chance to experience her cooking, and so you know what I'm talking about. But when Sarah gets in the kitchen, she is active. She is all over the place. She doesn't always just stick to the recipe. She's changing the recipe and tweaking it and tasting and trying and making it better. Rarely does she get into the kitchen, throw a bunch of ingredients into the pot, walk away for four hours and then come back and serve it to her guests. That's not how she works in the kitchen. And so if she were to tell me after service this morning that she wanted to go home and cook a meal together, I would have every right to believe that she would do so in the way that I know her to cook. She's going to be an interactive chef, someone who interacts with the ingredients and also interacts with the people. Let me give you another example. Uh, Imagine you're an entrepreneur or someone who starts a new business. Can you imagine trying to run that business without ever interacting with your products or your customers? Never interacting with your staff, never interacting with a financial statement, a profit and loss report. Your business wouldn't last very long. So like an attentive chef... Or an attentive entrepreneur. God interacts with the things that he has made. And we can clearly see that from the precedent of redemption history. So we can rightly believe that he's going to do it again by way of the return of Jesus. That, that should really build our certainty, shouldn't it? I mean, knowing that that God has, we, we know clearly He has interacted with that which He has created. He is governing the entire world, and so we have every right to believe that He will consistently come and to interact with it again. Well, so far we've looked at three ways, then, that our certainty can be bolstered, that Jesus is coming again by remembering, having our minds stirred up and stimulated to think biblically about the issue. And also to be alert, to raise our awareness to those who are going to mock that promise. And then also, as we just saw, to rest in the precedent of redemption history, that God's an interactive God and He interacts by way of His Word. But a final connection that Peter wants us to make here is the connection of imminent future judgment. In other words, we can be certain about the return of Jesus in light of the coming judgment. Judgment is imminent. We've already seen it from verse 7. But Peter goes on to talk about that imminent judgment in verses 8 to 10. We might read it together. But do not overlook this one fact, beloved. That with the Lord, one day is, is a thousand years. And a thousand years is one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill His promise. As some count slowness, but is patient toward you. Not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. But... The day of the Lord will come like a thief. And then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. You know, I hear a comment sometimes from both Christians and non Christians that, you know, God really is a God of love. He's a God of peace. He's not a God of judgment. I mean, that's not the God that I know or believe. He's a God of love. And maybe if there is an element of justice to his character, that's an Old Testament component of who God is. It's certainly not a New Testament way to look at God. This this passage really pushes us on that issue, doesn't it? God really is as much of a God of justice as he is a God of love. And those attributes of God need not not be set in opposition toward one another. They really can be cohesive and exist in harmony. And, And Peter offers up a couple of ways for us to be better informed about this issue and this part of God's character, his justice. First of all, we can see that judgment comes according to God's timeless plan. In other words, the timing of the final judgment at the return of Jesus, comes according to God's watch. It comes on His watch, not on ours. Verse 8, With the Lord, one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years is one day. You See, God operates outside of and above time. He's an eternal spirit being. In fact, He created time. And as the creator of time, He does not have the constraints within time and space in the same way that we do. Now, We modern Western people uh, can sometimes be really, really obsessive about time and timeliness. If we were to spend some time in other cultures, we would know that not everybody views time the same way that we do. And by confession, I am one of those uh, Western people who tends to be obsessed with timeliness. I like to be on time. And so I remember one occasion where I scheduled a a meeting with someone from the church here. And uh, I got there a little bit early, which I try to do. I like to be on time. And so I wasn't alarmed uh, or at all disturbed when the person wasn't there when I arrived because I tried to be there early. Well, before too long, five minutes went by, ten minutes went by, soon twenty minutes went by, and then I started to play the watch game. You may have played it before. It's where you look at your watch every few seconds thinking that the more you look at your watch, the more likely it is that that person is going to walk through the door. Finally, after about forty minutes, I started to get a little irritated. Where is this person? I mean, we're all busy people. Don't they understand this? I'm a busy guy. Come on, where is this person? It was only then that I thought to look at my calendar. And as I pulled out my phone and I looked at my calendar, I realized that I had the wrong day. I had the right time, but I had the wrong day. So what happened? I was operating on a different clock. I was operating on a different perspective of time than my appointment for that day. And and this is basically what Peter is saying, that, that our perspective of time is not the same as God's. And judgment is going to come according to his timeless plan. But there's something else that will help round out our understanding about this future judgment. The other thing that Peter wants us to know is that judgment also comes according to God's incredible patience. Not only by his timeless plan, but also by his incredible patience. As we wait... In the last days, that is the days that the Bible describes between Jesus' ascension and his return, God is exercising his remarkable patience for people to repent and come to Christ. We see that in verse 9. God isn't slow to fulfill his promise, so he's not dragging his feet along on the issue. No, no. He's showing great patience even in this very moment. Aren't you glad that Jesus didn't return in 1973? Some of you are like, man, am I ever. The 70s were a rough decade for me. And and we say that in jest. And yet, do we realize what this small verse in Peter's second letter is showing us about the character of God? He loves saving people. He loves saving people. The judgment that is sure to accommodate the return of Jesus is delayed because of God's patience. Listen to this toward those who hate Him. God is not waiting for Christians. He's waiting for non-Christians. He's waiting for those who are indifferent or antagonistic toward Him. That is, that's remarkable. What a God we serve. Now, what does that mean for us? I love the application that commentator Michael Green makes about this passage. He says the logical corollary then is that Christians should use this time before the Advent for preaching the gospel, and and it's really true. I mean, knowing that God wishes that none would perish without Christ, we should be motivated to tell people the truth about who Jesus is in light of the coming judgment. And maybe that's your takeaway this morning. Maybe there's a neighbor or a friend or a family member who you've been trying to talk to about the gospel, and for one reason or another, life has gotten in the way, fear of rejection, who knows what, but maybe there's one person this week that you need to talk to about the reality of the gospel in light of the coming judgment. I've got somebody in my life that I need to have that conversation this week, because God is exercising His, his patience, and while He is exercising His patience, we ought to engage as God's gospel storytellers, because the truth is, and we see it so clearly in verse ten, judgment is coming. God's patience is incredible, but it is not inexhaustible. Judgment is imminent. Notice in verse 10 the word will, translated four times here. But the day of the Lord will come. The heavens will pass away. The heavenly bodies will be dissolved. The earth and all the works that are done on it will be exposed. Imagine that all of your works all of your thoughts in full display before a holy god a god who is ready and willing and righteous in bringing judgment to every shred of wickedness that exists upon the earth a god that's eager to create a new world the home for righteousness what are you going to say on that day What could you possibly say when you're fully exposed and vulnerable, unable to hide a single thought? Upon what ground will you stand on that day? The only answer, my friends, is in passages like 1 Thessalonians 5, verses 9 and 10. In the context of the day of the Lord, here's what Paul says. God has not destined us for wrath... But to obtain salvation, that's good news. How does that happen? He goes on, through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us so that whether we're awake or asleep, we might live with him. How will you stand on the last day? Who will stand? Not those who stand on their good works. Those will be burned up. Not those who stand on their big 401k or their social connections or their social status, burned up, gone. How will you stand on that day? 1 Thessalonians 5 tells us the only answer. The only way to escape that judgment and the righteous wrath of God is by the salvation that comes through our Lord Jesus Christ. Who died for us so that we might live with him. Those who are going to stand on that day are only those who stand on the merits of Jesus. The one who on the cross was judged so that we could be pardoned. The one who died so that that we might live. Don't you see this is the beauty and the wonder of the gospel in the return of Jesus to the earth. And the reality is there's really a couple kind of people, a couple different perspectives as it comes to the return of Jesus to the earth. There are those who really don't want anything to do with it. Like those mockers. They don't want Jesus to come back. They know what that means. They know what's on the table there. So you're dreading that day. You're afraid of that day. You're antagonistic toward that day. Or... You're the kind of person who is eager and anticipating the return of Jesus, knowing that in a day when Jesus is not glorified as Savior and King among every person in the earth, every tribe, every tongue, every nation, a day is coming when every knee will bow. And you love that idea. When Jesus will be the center as he deserves and merits to be. The question is, which group are you in? You might be here this morning and, and saying, in a moment of honesty, Chris, I don't know if I'm ready for the last day. I don't know if I'm ready. I have good news for you this morning. The good news is this. God is not looking for the ready as much as he's looking for the repentant. You notice that passage doesn't say that God is is patient toward those who will get their lives together. That's fantastic news because I'm not ever going to get my life together. But he is waiting for the repentant He's not waiting for those who are quick to say, you know what, I've got it all together. I'm going to be fine. I'll stand. We'll see how it goes. I like my chances. He is patient toward those who come to repentance, those who are willing to say that they don't have it all together, those willing to acknowledge their own need for a Savior, knowing that it's only upon the outside merits of Jesus that they can stand upon. Those that say, dress in His righteousness alone, as we sang earlier, faultless to stand before the throne. So the good news for you this morning is that God's not waiting for you to get your life together. He's waiting for you to repent, to change your mind, to change your direction from following yourself and and mocking God's word to embracing it and embracing a new life, a life of forgiveness and peace, trusting that, that the merits of Jesus, his work upon the cross really was sufficient to save you and believing in that and repenting. If you're here this morning and you are a Christian, my prayer for you is that your certainty has somehow been encouraged today, that your, your, your strength has been bolstered, that Jesus really is coming again, that there is a great purpose for this day, this gap, the last days, the church age, there's great purpose in that, and that you can continue to build that certainty as you remember to think biblically, as you raise your awareness toward those who are quick to mock God's promise. As you rest in the precedent of redemption history, knowing that, you know what, God has done it before. He's going to do it again. And also as you remember the coming judgment. And as we all together as believers eagerly anticipate the day of the Lord. Truly His day. His day is coming. And so together, we say with great humility and great anticipation, even so, come quickly, Lord Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we are grateful for the certainty of Jesus' return. We know what that means. We know it will bring in a day when justice and righteousness will reign. And we are thankful that we are able to experience your wrath and judgment against wickedness, not because of our own merits, but purely because of the merits of Jesus What a beautiful solution to our biggest problem that you have graciously provided. So we embrace the cross today. We embrace it even as we come to the Lord's table now, remembering that what Jesus has done is sufficient to allow us to stand faultless before the throne. For these and all things, we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.